Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Barrel Proof Baseball Podcast. Today's guest is LC May from Clyde Mays. Um, LC May, all right, as you're checking out this bottle, if you're watching this, LC May is the same May as what it says on this bottle. Uh, Clyde May was LC May's grandfather. So I enjoyed this conversation a lot because this isn't just somebody who is um, working for a brand. This is grandfather's name on the bottle. So he, he's going to come from a, a place of having a uh, probably a deeper care factor and making sure that there's good whiskey being put into the bottle uh, and making sure that the, the story is being told accurately and being sold in the, in the best way possible. I love the bourbon industry and its folklore, its stories, uh, where it came from, the upbringing, the family recipes, all that stuff. But uh, when you've got something that's actually related to the person whose name is on the bottle, uh, that adds a little bit to it for them. So I, I was really excited about this conversation. I love my chat with LC. Um, I was a little upset that I had never tried Clyde Mays before because I, I, I like this and I really want to try some of their other bottles that they have. Um, so check it out, learn a little bit more about Clyde Mays, learn a little bit more about, uh, LC and, uh, his role with the company and what he does. So check it out. I think you'll enjoy this one. All right. Thanks. Cheers. All right, I'm joined today by Elsie May uh, from Clyde Mays. Elsie, thank you so much for jumping on here with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, so tell me a little bit about yourself, um, maybe how you got in with whiskey, with Clyde Mays, uh, your role with the brand as well. Uh, let's hear a little bit about you. Yeah, uh, so I'm the national brand ambassador for Clyde Mays Whiskey. So basically, I go around and uh, travel the country and, you know, do the interviews and the whiskey shows and kind of teach people how to enjoy this product. But uh, I'm also the grandson of Clyde May, the original maker. So that's more or less how I got into the whiskey business. It's been in my family for uh, my whole life. And I've been around whiskey making both legally and illegally, like what my grandfather was doing uh, my entire life. And I've been in this role now since I graduated college in 2017, so a little over four years at this point and uh, having a great time and meeting a lot of uh, people and drinking a lot of good whiskey and getting to tell the world my grandfather's story, so I have a lot of fun doing it. I can imagine uh, going around and meeting people, talking whiskey with people has got to be an enjoyable, enjoyable way to spend your days. Absolutely. You know, obviously, uh, uh, my buddies mess around with me and they're like, yeah, you have the best job ever. You get to just drink whiskey all day and talk to people. And I'm like, well, yes, but you know, every job comes with its uh, fair share of stress and worry, but I'm very fortunate and blessed to be able to carry on my grandfather's legacy and uh, talk about his whiskey and what makes his whiskey unique and uh, you know, and to also get to travel to places I would have never imagined traveling mm -hmm. to tell his story since we're from such a small rural area in Alabama. It's, uh, it's really, sometimes I kind of have to take a step back and like, this is real. This is, this is unbelievable. 
tell me, so, you know, I think people in general hear a lot about, you know, brand ambassadors and stuff like that. So is your job more or less to um, introduce people to like Clyde Mays? Is it to um, get it into bars or expand it into other stores? Or like, what is your primary role as a, as a national brand ambassador? Uh, For me, it's a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything you just mentioned. I have met ambassadors for larger companies where their role is more of getting in front of people and doing whiskey shows and bourbon dinners and things of that nature. And I've met, you know, ones like myself where the company is a little bit smaller and you kind of have to wear many hats. Uh, mm-hmm. So with my role, I do a lot. Uh, you know, I kind of the national brand ambassador title is kind of one big umbrella, and there's several things that fall under that umbrella. And uh, for example, uh, I'm based here in Alabama. I'm still 20 minutes from where I was born and raised, but I'm the assistant state manager here. So I'm doing things like making sure products getting delivered on time, and if there's any issues in the warehouse, taking care of that, handling new listings of products that come into the state. But then also I'm out nationally doing those whiskey dinners and the whiskey shows and um, interviews and bottle signings and meeting with accounts to either say, hey, thank you for carrying this product or, hey, let's talk about getting Clyde Mays in your account. So it's a little bit of everything, to say the least. That, that doesn't sound uh, doesn't sound terrible. Go out no, and meet no, people. And... Not, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Uh, tell me a little bit about your grandfather. I saw he was a, uh, was a bronze star recipient, uh, World War II veteran. Right. Uh, Purple Heart. Uh, that's, uh, that's incredible. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, so he's the, you know, I have the coolest job ever, but I wouldn't have this job if it were not for Clyde May. I'm, I'm Lewis Clyde May II. He was Lewis Clyde May. I'm Lewis Clyde May. So, you know, I have the honor and the privilege of telling his story, but he, he really has the, had the cool life. I mean, it was not easy uh, at, at all, but uh, he was actually born in the same area that I grew up in. You know, we I grew up two houses down from where he lived. It's uh, out in the middle of nowhere in southeast Alabama, outside of a very small town called Union Springs, Alabama. And as you mentioned, he fought in World War II. If you've ever seen or heard of the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is based on the life of Desmond Doss, my grandfather and Desmond Doss were in the same infantry together. So, you know, if you've seen that movie, you've seen the battle and the bloodshed that occurred and Clyde May was in the thick of it. And Clyde May, even though we tell his story now and we kind of make him seem like a rock star, which he is, uh, as I mentioned, he had a difficult life in, in a very rural area. When he was only five years old, his mother died. He never knew his father. He was raised by his grandparents who were poor sharecroppers during the Great Depression. So he was motivated to, despite living in an area that doesn't have a whole lot to offer, he was going to do whatever it took to provide a comfortable life for his family, his growing family, which by the time it was all said and done, uh, was eight children with my grandmother. So um, he was determined and he, you know, he never just made whiskey. He also always had a full-time job, rather it was farming or uh, he was in the timber industry for a number of years. But around 1946, not long after he returned home from World War II, recovered from his injuries, he began making moonshine. 
uh, as a way to provide that extra source of income to provide for his family. But very quickly, it became more than just money to him because he was a firm believer that everything he does, whether it's a batch of whiskey or you know, building a fence for somebody, his reputation is attached to it. So he made sure to do whatever it took to make the very best product. And he built that reputation over many years. And that's why he became one of the more prominent moonshiner and whiskey makers, um, not only in Alabama, but really the Southeast. And um, it's worth noting, Clyde May never sold a legal bottle in his entire life from 1946 until he died in 1990. Every bottle of moonshine he distilled and every batch of whiskey he aged was illegal. And it wasn't until about 11 years after he died that one of his sons, my uncle, uh, Kenny May was his name, he started the brand legally in 2001. So we've been legal now for roughly 20 years. However, um, the man that started all this never sold a legal bottle in his entire life. I think... <laughs> So it's, I think it's always fun. I love the stories behind whiskey. I think it's really cool. Um, and I think when you have that behind you that, you know what, like this was something obviously going back into prohibition times. I mean, the whole thing uh, with the legality of selling and making and transporting liquor, uh, like you said, knowing that he never sold anything legally, uh, that makes it pretty cool, you know, and like the namesake carries on, but the fact that this man was making it illegally. I'm sorry, but that makes it really cool. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's it's part of our, you know, legacy. It's part of the story. And what's really unique about it, uh, you know, in today's time, and this isn't, a, you know, a knock on anyone who's done this at all, because I'm a firm believer in, you know, the American dream doing what you uh, dream to do. However, when Clyde May was doing this, he didn't do it with the hopes and dreams of one day creating a legal brand. Uh, he, he was a very blue collar, um, very uh, just a good old country boy, basically. He didn't think that one day, like, hey, I'm going to, you know, apply to get a license and do this legally. He was just doing it to provide for his family in an area that didn't have a whole lot to offer. And he actually did go to prison for eight months for making whiskey in the early 1970s. So, um, I said that he never sold a legal bottle in his life, and that's correct, but uh, there was a brief eight-month period between 1946 and 1990 when he wasn't selling it at all because he was in prison for making whiskey, so uh, he was the real deal. There's no doubt about it, uh, and it's, it's even crazier for me because I grew up, my father was the youngest of the eight children. His name is Billy May. He continued making moonshine illegally for many years after my grandfather died. He kind of felt it was his um, duty to carry on his father's name in that way. So I've been around whiskey making both illegally and illegally my entire life, you know, even though obviously now I plan on carrying it on the legal way and breaking the family tradition of getting arrested for making whiskey, uh, I've still, you know, been around the block or a time or two and you know seeing how it's done both legally and illegally what was the what was the moment or the determining factor or the reasoning behind uh your uncle deciding to i guess take it forward and and turn it into a legal entity and uh 
you know, do this thing for real and not, not continue on the moonshining slash illegal path. Right. Kenny, my uncle Kenny, he was a firm uh, believer in wanting to just tell the world the story of Clyde May and never in a million years. I don't even think he, he has since passed, but I don't think he ever envisioned it getting as large as it has become today. And that's not to say that we're as big as some of your giants. We hope to get to that point one day, but he just wanted to tell the world his father's story. And part of that story uh, isn't just like, hey, he was a moonshiner. More important than that was, here's what he did to make a unique and high quality whiskey. And that was kind of the tradition and legacy he wanted to carry on. And he probably had the same thought process as me was, you know, I'm not going to go to, I don't want to do it illegally. I want the world to know it and not have to worry about uh, the law breathing down my neck. So that, I think that was his inspiration to stay. It was a process he actually started in the late 1990s. And obviously these things don't happen overnight, but the first batches of Clyde May's whiskey uh, were released to the masses, so to speak, in 2001. Um, so you've been going on for 20 years now. Correct. And there, you new. know, for a majority of our existence, uh, I would say the first 12 or 13 years, we were very, very small. And when I say small, I mean a couple hundred cases in Alabama, maybe and maybe a few extra cases and some bordering southern states, you know, the, I don't think that even Kenny knew that one day, like, hey, this would blow up. But um, around 2013, uh, we got the, you know, honestly, you can have the best whiskey on earth, but if you don't have the right people behind it and get it in front of the right people, it's not going to go anywhere. And it was around 2013 that we finally you know, got the right people behind it to help the product grow and kind of market it and get it out there. And now we're in all 50 states and about seven countries. So, uh, you know, it's come along. So while we've been around since 2001, really this expansion and growth we've seen has really only been in the last seven or so years. That's incredible. I, I've heard from a number of people talking about, you know, trying to get distribution into other states and just the, um, legality perspective of you know each state has their own regulations they have their own you know uh um their rules their laws in terms of you know alcohol distribution and so it, it seems like to get into all 50 states without being one of the big boys without coming from you know heaven hill or buffalo trace or something seems like that's a that's a tall task to take on oh absolutely it's certainly a tall task uh as you mentioned, every state is different. Of course, some states are very similar, but there's always one or two things that will make a state different from another. But especially when you factor in that you have open states and control states. Um, for example, Alabama is a control state. I live in a control state, so I'm kind of having to um, deal with that a lot. And um, really and truly, first and foremost, the reason this brand has been able to get in those markets despite how tough it's been at times, is because of the quality of the whiskey and, you know, the name and the man and the story behind it. However, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, the people that we have working for our company as well are uh, some of the most experienced uh, industry veterans you could possibly find. And they've 
worked very hard to help this brand grow because they believe in it as well. You know, we're kind of a, we're not a big company, but we're kind of like a big family, uh, so to speak, you know, even though they're not, um, I'm really the only May uh, that's a day-to-day -day employee. All the other May family members are more behind the scenes, but um, kind of the pound the pavement guys, while they might not be May family members, you certainly won't never know it the way they speak and promote and push this brand. They're uh, just as passionate about it as you can possibly be. So that's a big reason why we've been able to grow. Yeah, I think that's something that probably in a lot of industries is very difficult, especially, you know, it's your family's name that's on that bottle. Um, so no one's going to care probably the way that you are or in the right, same way. Exactly. Exactly. So having people that that do care, uh, want to push it, want to expand it, you know, want it to to grow positively, I think is a huge deal. And having the right people in place is the only way to make those things happen. Do you feel like um pushing forward what kind of hurdles will you have to face um to continue to grow the brand because again like uh, talking with people from you know some some craft distilleries and some that are significantly smaller than Clyde Mays they come out and they've always said everybody always says look we're not trying to compete with Buffalo Trace because we're not going to beat Buffalo Trace we're not going to outsell Jim Beam um and that's clearly known however how do you you know, make room on that in that space for Clyde Mays to continue to grow, to continue to be um, something that's highly sought after. Absolutely. I think a big uh, part of that and accomplishing that, you know, the biggest challenge we face in this industry is the bourbon category has just taken off. I mean, tenfold, uh, certainly, you know, I can't even imagine how much bigger what uh, it is now versus when we started just 20 years ago. You know, the bourbon category has really taken off. So we're faced with the question, you know, how do we stand out from a cluttered category? As you said, you know, how do we, you know, stand out? And uh, as you mentioned as well, we're not trying to take down one of these one of these giants you know we're just trying to build our own name and legacy and I think the way the most important thing in my opinion and as this is probably an easy answer seems pretty simplistic but it's the right answer I know you know no matter what you have you know it doesn't matter who's on the bottle it doesn't matter whose name is on the bottle it doesn't matter about the backstory of the person on that bottle, you have to have that quality product in order to succeed first and foremost. Mm -hmm. If a consumer goes to a store and they buy a bottle of Clyde Mays or any brand for that matter, and they feel like they paid one more dollar than what it felt it was worth when they tasted it, then the more than likely they will never buy it again. Yeah. So our goal is to produce a, um, a very premium, a super premium product, do it at a reasonable price. And then once you accomplish that quality and standard of excellence, then you start to build with your story and who you are and why you're unique. And I think if you get the right people out there, get in front of the right people and just, you know, word of mouth travels and um, it'll get you a lot farther than people realize it'll get you. Uh, that's not to say that's the only answer. You know, once you get to a certain level, 
there's always something you got to do differently to take it to the next step. But first and foremost, and most importantly, you got to have high quality and great liquid, which Clyde Mays accomplishes, which is why we've grown the way we've grown. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that's, I think the story is nice. And I, I totally agree. I think if you, if you try whiskey and you don't really like it, you're not going to buy it again and go, the whiskey sucks, but the story is great. I really like the story. So I'm going to drink that. Um, right. Because in no other walk of life are you going to do that. I don't care if it's food or anything else. Exactly. So I, th that makes perfect sense. Like start with good whiskey and the, uh, the story becomes interesting enough to check out and then follow up with, and, and then it becomes a part of the good whiskey. Um, now, are you guys making your own or is this something that you guys, you know, get your recipe out to somewhere else that's produced elsewhere? Um, what is that process like for you guys? So currently our products are produced at MGP in Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, it is our proprietary blend and finishes. You know, we'll kind of dive into that as we taste the individual product and I'll explain what that finish is and why, and why it's unique to us. But uh, we... I mentioned earlier, Kenny May, my uncle, started this process in 19, the late 1990s, and he spent two years trying to get a license to legally distill this whiskey in the state of Alabama, and at the time, legal distillation was not a thing. It was mm. still illegal to distill any spirits. I'm talking vodka, gin, rum, whatever. You couldn't do it, mm. and so essentially, he, Kenny, one thing that I don't think my uncle gets enough credit for is while, you know, I don't, you know, everybody has a different opinion about sourcing and things like that, but Kenny May went out and had to find another distillery to make it to our specifications and our blends and our finishes, and that he was doing it in a time when people didn't even know what sourcing was, you know, mm -hmm. everybody kind of made their own whiskey, so um, legal distillation did not occur in the state of Alabama until 2015. So wow. for 14 years, no products were distilled legally here in the state. But once they did make it legal, we have now announced and have been in the process of planning and building our very own state-of-the-art distillery in Troy, Alabama, which is where I live today. So, you know, we've finish the road work, all the infrastructure. We have the property, um, all the equipment's ordered. Uh, we will be breaking ground on the actual distillery here in the next couple months. And then it should be fully operational about 14 months from the time we break ground. So we plan to be fully operational in 2023. Of course, we have to let product age. So we'll continue to source uh, using our blends our uh, finishes and everything like that. But uh, what we have done and what we've accomplished is uh, based on what we, uh, the way we look at it is it's our whiskey. We just don't own the equipment mm -hmm. uh, because the blends and the finishes they use for us are not used by any other brand in the United States. So it is a unique product to us. I think the MGP thing is, I like having the conversation about MGP stuff because there's great whiskey coming from there and people have a great idea of what they want to create, what they want to make. Um, and I think it's a great way to put your own whiskey into a bottle and sell it under your own brand. I think it's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, I think there's a great story behind it. And so I, I think it's, 
it's funny that people do have different uh, different feelings on the MGP stuff, but I'm I, I'm not on the side of the people who are against it. I'm I'm all I'm all in. I think here in the last, I would even say in the last two or three years, we've seen kind of a changing tide. I felt like when I first got into this industry, I think sourcing was uh, something that a lot of people kind of turned their nose up to. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the growth of bourbon and whiskey and how many really good whiskeys and bourbons there are out there that are sourced, not just from MGP, but from yep. other distilleries everywhere. I think people have slowly come around to the idea where it's okay, as long as you're doing it your way and it is truly your blend and how to your specifications and there's nothing wrong with sourcing, you know, especially in our case, because we had no um, choice. We were legally, you know, had our hands tied and unable to do it here in Alabama, but we're finally bringing it home to Alabama uh, but until then, we'll continue to use our proprietary blends and finishes uh, in our products. So not to get too far ahead, but if you're opening in 23, um, is that something where like 25, uh, you'd release a, a straight whiskey or a straight bourbon? Um, or is that something that you'd like to age longer? Uh, our or is youngest that just kind of- product is four years old. So okay. uh, and we plan to keep it that way. Um, okay. You know, we... Obviously, whenever you build a brand new distillery, people are really excited and want to get their hands on distill it from that distillery. And that's that's awesome. We want that, too. But at the same time, it's what I was talking about earlier. That liquid has to meet a certain standard of excellence, especially if it's got my grandfather's name on it. He did whatever it took. He didn't cut corners to make a quality whiskey. So we're not going to feel the pressure of just rushing into it and yeah. saying, Hey, we're it's two years old. Let's throw it out there. Um, we will begin bottling immediately. Of course, at that facility, we are going to do something unique where we have some barrels that we had just laid down and we're going to bring them to Alabama to finish aging. So there will be early on, there will be some product that we can say was aged in Alabama and bottled in Alabama, but in terms of being able to say distilled, aged, bottled in Alabama, it'll be at least four years from the time uh, we are up and running with the facility. Makes sense. Yeah, that's got to be tough, man. I can't. I can't imagine as you lay those down and you're going, man, four years. All right, like you got <laughs> you lay another one down and you're like, all right, four more years. It, it's uh, very tough, and uh, it, it will be difficult. That's not to say that we won't have any uh distillate that will all you know there's been talks and i've even discussed uh because since my grandfather was a moonshiner and a majority of what he sold was unaged product we've talked about maybe doing some kind of uh it would technically be white dog i don't believe in really using the term moonshine i don't believe there's a such thing as legal moonshine that term literally means illegal so I, I would call it some kind of white dog that we would offer as maybe a distillery exclusive or something like that to really pay tribute to what my grandfather was doing on that front but in terms of aged product uh, we're just going to have to be patient and uh, keep in mind that we have a, a reputation to uphold and that's you know that's what will help keep us patient yeah that's I think as long as you know that's in the uh, in the future, it helps a little bit. I'm sure that yeah, absolutely the first release that's you know produced and distilled and bottled out of Alabama is going to be a pretty exciting day for you guys. Uh, we'll be uh, 
I'm counting down the days already. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about it. My ultimate goal with this distillery is uh, I, I hope to transition and work my way into becoming the master distiller. Uh, that, of course, that's been the dream from day one. I feel like I'm not really a, a May unless I'm making whiskey. So that'll be, I can't wait to, for the distillery to be up and running and I can just get in and start getting my hands dirty and start, you know, really working and building this brand and laying down liquid and getting it rocking and rolling. Well, when that happens, you're going to have to come back on and talk with me about it. Cause that's, oh, absolutely. that's, hey, that's one of those like dream jobs. You know what I mean? Like how cool would that be? We, uh, we'll, we'll do a live show from the distillery. We'll have you come in from Arizona and, uh, you'll feel right at home because we, we have a lot of heat here too. So, (laughs) so. all right. I want to talk some about this. So I, you know, I've, this is my first time trying Clyde Mays. I've never had it before. Um, not for any reason. I just haven't had it. And again, I've been kind of sipping on this while we've been talking. It's really good. Um, first things first, I'm curious where, it says Alabama style. Is that right. is that in um, reference to anything specific, or is that more so in re- in, in reference to your grandfather, uh, or is that a specific style that is you know uh, unique to Alabama? Uh, it's really to answer your question. It's the first two. Uh, it's right. it's something that's unique to us because it was my grandfather's recipe. So while you have you know Tennessee whiskeys and Kentucky bourbons. All of those have a set uh, number of laws they have to follow to qualify. You know, I know everybody associates Tennessee whiskey with Jack Daniels, but there's a lot of other Tennessee whiskeys out there. And of course, there's God knows how many Kentucky bourbons out there. Um, The term Alabama style is actually a term that's trademarked to us and to us only because it's my grandfather's recipe and what Alabama style means. So. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned to you, Clyde May, a majority of what he sold was unaged white lightning moonshine. However, he actually took the time to age a lot of his moonshine into whiskey. And he didn't have the luxury of aging it for as long as we do today because he was doing it illegally. Um, he was lucky if he could age it for a year. So he initially did it and initially tasted the finished product and was not happy with it he, because it didn't meet his standard. It had not aged long enough, but he knew the answer to him wasn't, hey, I got to age it longer because he didn't have that kind of time when you're doing something illegally. Sure. So he had to figure out something to do to the actual product uh, to make it taste better and smoother into his standards. So He tried several different things. It was very much a trial and error process, but he discovered through that trial and error process that adding a hint, not a lot, just a hint of oven dried apple slices to the barrel at the very end of the aging process, not to flavor the whiskey, but to finish the whiskey, did just enough to take off some of that spice and burn. So what the term Alabama style means, we don't use actual oven dried apple slices today. Another reason he did that, the oven dried aspect would assist with the color and help it get more of that char color. We don't have that problem because we can age it for as long as we want. So we have 
a natural flavoring that we add at the very end of the aging process after it's been dumped and blended and everything like that. In fact, up until that point, it's a straight bourbon. But once we add, and we're only adding, I believe uh, it's less than half a percent. I believe that it's like 0.35% oh, wow. uh, to the this gigantic blend. Because keep in mind, when you blend barrels, you know, unless it's a small batch, you might be blending 60, 70, or even 100 barrels together to match your flavor profile. And we add less than half a percent of that natural uh, essence to the product to, you know, not only carry on my grandfather's legacy and to carry on his recipe, but also bring something unique to the market and to really make it a smooth product. So Alabama style is unique to Clyde Mays. That's not to say that someone cannot make an Alabama whiskey. That's not to say someone cannot add a hint of apple to a whiskey. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying specifically the terminology or the phrase Alabama style is unique to us. That's, that's really cool. I did not know that. Um, okay, so you have, do you guys, you guys have a straight bourbon, right? We do, yes. So basically, uh, which it is, we do blend different barrels. So even if this didn't have that hint of that natural essence, it's the two products would still be different. But the uh, essentially speaking, the straight bourbon is the product without the Alabama style finish. Uh, we're most known. Uh, now, granted, probably our best-selling product nationwide is our straight bourbon because people know straight bourbon. You don't have to explain straight bourbon to people, whereas you do have to explain Alabama style to people. But um, a lot of people still, now I shouldn't say a lot of people, but there are people out there that get confused and think every product that says Clyde Mays on it has that hint of apple or what you know it's only the ones that say alabama style if it doesn't say alabama style it just is what it says it is rather yeah. it's a straight bourbon or a straight rye or whatever it may be yeah I, I mean so it's interesting to me because i think that does get confusing probably for people where they go with what they what they are um accustomed to like a, a straight right. bourbon you know it's at least two years and so you, you know that that's probably a uh very simple grab for somebody. Uh, but again, like the stories behind whiskeys, I think it's nice to know that and get that story out there. And people understand that um, it's not a, like you said, it's not a flavored whiskey. It's, it's finished. Um, and right. those are so popular, obviously right now with, especially with some bourbons. Absolutely. Yeah. And we even, you know, technically speaking, we probably could put on the bottle something like, straight bourbon with an Alabama style finish and it's we're not calling it a bourbon or whatever uh, you know you know the whole debate with just like the wine finishes or whatever yeah. technically it's not a bourbon once you do that but the reason they get around it is they say straight bourbon finished in finished. this or finished with this or whatever um we wanted just something just completely unique we didn't want to confuse people and from that point of view we wanted to say hey we want to be known. This was Clyde May's recipe. We wanted to stand on its own two feet and we wanted to be known as, and we came up with, he never referred to what he was doing as Alabama style. That was something we came up with that um, specific term, but you're right. It is easier for people just to gravitate towards the bourbon. And that's why uh, I tell people, no matter what we produce, whether it's a bourbon or rye, 
no matter the finish, no matter the small batch, single barrel, the mash bill, the yeast, whatever it is, we have a standard we have to upkeep. And that's the greatest way we honor my grandfather, Clyde May, is matching his standard of excellence, regardless of what type of bourbon or what type of whiskey uh, is inside the bottle. However, uh, this original Alabama style whiskey, which the reason we call it original, that was the only product in our portfolio for many years. And we've expanded and added the bourbon and we've added a rye whiskey and now we have aged product as well. But this was the original. And, you know, these kind of things don't happen overnight and we know that, but part of our goal is to kind of introduce people not only to our bourbons and our rye whiskeys, which are things people know, but also introduce them to Alabama style and explain to them, hey, this is what that means. This is what this is, you know. Yeah, that's I think it's really cool. And I, I, you know, just looking at the label itself, I mean, I think it's really cool. Like you've got pictures of him with his name on it, you know, and like right. it's available since 1946, legal since 2001. You know, I think it's right. I mean, the whole the label itself tells a great story. I mean, I think it's a really cool um, you know, added piece to it. It's not just something that's bland. that's just out there on a shelf like there is a story behind this clearly. Um, and again, coming from a moonshining background and then becoming legal and especially in Alabama, uh, having to wait till what, 2015, you said to, to make it yeah. legal to distill it there. Like that's, it's a great story. And I think the label is a big part of that personally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked about it earlier about what's important and what do you do to kind of rise above the clutter. And one thing I was kind of, uh, I failed to mention and should have mentioned is because I'm big of what's inside the bottle is most important point blank, easiest question, but I'm also, and my, uh, my CEO and this company, we're very big on packaging as well. We want the bottle to be able to tell a story because for a lot of people out there, when they're shopping for a new whiskey or a new bourbon, it might be that packaging, that label yeah. that draws them in to, because we don't all have, you know, liquor stores where there's someone that can recommend something, you know, you sometimes got to kind of have to go off what you read on the bottle. So uh, packaging is very key uh, and it's important. Uh, however, you got to make sure that uh, they like what's inside that bottle if you want to sure. uh, get a repeat customer. But packaging is um, very important. And we I feel like we've done a great job of um, putting together a really nice label and telling a great story uh, with all of our products. Yeah, that packaging might get somebody to buy the first bottle, but the uh, the juice inside is going to get them to come back and buy another one. Yeah, exactly, one. exactly. So tell me, let's talk about this one in particularly. So it's a uh, 85 proof, which I right. think is a nice, you know, just able to sit down and sip on it. You know, you're not talking your cask strength, which, um, you know, very, very popular. I like some of them. Um, but again, I don't always want to sit down and drink a 120 proof bourbon. Right. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about this. What are we, what are we drinking here? So it's, uh, so like, as you mentioned, it's an 85 proof. Uh, it is a blend of four and five year old straight bourbon whiskeys. Uh, of course, as I'm sure, you know, with bourbon law, if you were to ask me, Hey, how old it is, I got to quote the youngest barrel in the blend. So it would be four years old. However, there are five year old bourbons in this blend. And at the, after it's been dumped and blended right before it's bottled, we add that very, very small amount of natural essence to the uh, batch to 
obviously carry on my grandfather's recipe and tradition. But the reason why he was doing that, that and the reason we also do it um, is to really take off some of that spice and burn and to really uh, create a, a smooth, unique product. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, it's, I hate to use the word smooth most of the time. Right. Um, unless it's actually smooth, you know, right. like you can get some of those well, high proofs. And- yeah, you're absolutely right. Every whiskey, regardless of what it is, has some kind of burn to it, you know, especially to the yeah. um, someone who's not a, a whiskey or yeah. bourbon consumer. They're like, oh, no, this still burns. But I guess what I mean with that is in relation to, maybe other products of the same proof or for what it is, it's uh, very nice and very drinkable. Yeah. It it kind of takes the edge off a little bit. Absolutely. Cause uh, yes. And I'm with you there. Like it's a, uh, when I think smooth, I mean, there's some really high proofs that are smooth, you know, they don't necessarily like you can taste the, the burn from the proof or uh, whether it's a rye spice or something like that. But um, it just kind of, it really like calms it down and it makes it very, very drinkable. Absolutely. Is this uh, now? Is this one of the? Can you can you get into the mash bill on this or no? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is so it's seventy five percent corn, it's twenty one percent rye, and it's four percent malted barley, uh, which is a uh, one of the more common uh, MGP mash bills. However, the uh, where we pull these barrels from and where we blend it is actually very unique in terms of you know. Um, the way you proof down a whiskey, of course, is with water, but you can also get it to a certain proof by blending low and high proof uh, products. So the way we blend this and then, of course, with the finish uh, certainly makes it a unique product. Yeah, this is delicious. I mean, that's I, I definitely uh, definitely could sip on this one. What see? Uh, what is the price point on these typically? So it, it's going to vary uh, by market, as we mentioned earlier, you know, with control states and, you know, so, uh, but I will say in most markets, you'll find it around 30 bucks or 31 bucks, but you may see it as high as 35 bucks if you're in a control state or um, a state that has a different price hike or different taxes. So uh, I feel comfortable saying, depending on where you are between 30 and 35 dollars um i this is really good i've I've never had it before this is my first time trying it i really like this um i mean it's definitely you know caramely it's definitely not like overbearing with the uh uh it's not super oaky but it's definitely got a nice oak to it um yeah i really like this one thank you i appreciate it yeah and it's uh, you know, that's I, I love for people to kind of sip before I explain Alabama style, because uh-huh. if you tell people like, hey, this has that natural essence of apple added, they're instantly thinking, oh, this is some apple. kind of apple whiskey, you know, and a lot of times and we don't do it for flavor. We do it for finish. And my grandfather was a firm believer for the same reason. He was a believer. If I'm working so hard to make this product uh, taste great on its own two feet what's the point and you know because you can make a bad product and over flavor it and disguise it as kind of a, a good product so uh, I like to let people taste and then explain because a lot of times it's so subtle they can't even tell me what that finish is because it's not an apple flavor or anything like that it's just a uh, finish that we do to uh, carry on that recipe and also make a unique product. Yeah, I definitely I like I mean, you can definitely get the rye spice out of it. I mean, it's nice yeah. and 
there's definitely a spice to it that I think is really nice. Um, I've personally gone to more high rye type bourbons. Right. Um, I, I just really like them. I, I like the, uh, I like that spice aspect to it. Um, and I, I like how this thing, uh, I like how it lingers around as well. I really do. We're, we're big on rye as well, only because, um, you know, of course, or I, I'm not saying every moonshiner is like this. I'm speaking kind of from a outsider looking in point of view. A lot of people associate moonshine as corn whiskey or, mm -hmm. you know, they think corn when they think moonshine. Well, my grandfather actually used a good bit of rye when he was making his whiskey. Um, he literally used to call rye a flavor grain. And you can talk to any master distiller now and they'll say those exact same words. So my grandfather was a little ahead of his time and you know realizing that rye was more or less a flavor grain that brought something unique to the table i've never heard it said like that but i think that's a really uh i think it's a great point because i don't feel like you get i mean unless something is a really really high malted barley where you get like a you know very specific cereal type grain to it right you know, I don't feel like you get a lot of, I mean, maybe a, a wheat that kind of doles it down, but I don't feel like it adds a flavor. Right. I don't know, but I like that. I mean, I, I think that's a great way you to look know, at it. Uh, with bourbon, of course, you know, corn certainly has its own, you know, you can tell the difference between high corn and low corn and stuff like that. But because corn has to be the dominant grain in a bourbon, you know, what master distillers try to look for is, all right, what's that magic number of the uh, either the rye or the wheat, if it's a weeded bourbon, that kind of can make it um, a unique, flavorful product. And so we've got, we don't necessarily, you know, obviously there's some high rye bourbons that are, you know, 40% rye or something like that. We feel like the amount of rye in this is a nice balance and a nice touch. Yeah, I, I like it. I would, uh, I would definitely buy this one. I, I really like this a lot. Thank um, you. Thank especially you. on a, just a, a daily sipper. I mean, I think that's a great price point. I think the, the whiskey is good. Um, tell me a little bit about some of your other ones. I noticed a couple of bottles behind you, but tell me about some of the other bottles that you guys have. Right. So uh, this is, we have what we kind of call our core three, uh, which are everyday readily available products in most markets which would be the one that we tasted today, the original Alabama style whiskey. And then the straight bourbon, it's a 92 proof. It's a blend of four and five year old straight bourbons as well, non-chill filtered. And then we have a straight rye whiskey that's a 94 proof. Uh, it's a four year old and it's uh, non-chill filtered as well. And then we start to kind of dive into the higher proofs. So uh, we try to have at least one product that appeals to every type of whiskey and bourbon drinker. Rather, you like the low proofs, high proofs, the mixable ones, whatever it may be. So after that rye whiskey, you start to get, we have a 110 proof um, straight bourbon. It's a small batch. Um, currently, uh, it's a five-year-old, but it's almost six years old. It's five years, 10 months. But by bourbon law, you cannot round up. You can only round down. So we're actually the next line of bottling of this batch that we're about to produce will actually be a six-year-old because it's going to hit the six-year-old mark with that uh, 110 proof straight bourbon. But uh, we're also releasing this year a 13-year-old Alabama style cask strength whiskey. 
and then a 13 year old uh, cask straight straight bourbon. And then last but certainly not least, our oldest product to date, which is a 15 year old straight bourbon. It is going to be high proof, but not cask strength. Uh, but uh, those that's kind of the Climate's lineup. And we do, we, you know, we'll do single barrel projects and stuff like that as well. But in terms of, I don't want to say readily available because the yeah. older age stuff is much more allocated, but stuff that you'll are, uh, are easier to locate would be the, the products I just listed off. Is there uh distribution? I know you said that you guys are available in all 50 states. So some of those other ones that are a little bit more harder to come by, some of those allocated ones, are those um, available in like online or is that something? Yeah, that they have so to depending on what state you live in, um, you know, it can be something that you can find in say a total wine and more or something like that. However, we do uh, use reservebar.com. And they will, we give them a certain number of some of our allocated products to offer online to people who can legally have products shipped to their state. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's more of um, once it's gone, it's gone kind of thing, mm -hmm. like all allocated products. However, I'm a big believer in trying to help the consumer as much as possible. So that's why anytime I do any kind of tasting or anything like that, I leave all my business cards and I'm like, Hey, if you can't find a bottle, I'm not going to sit here and say, I can get you one, but you know, tell me where you live and I'll see if there's still one available somewhere close to you. Sure. You know, so uh, That's kind of how we operate with our allocated products. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's nice to have allocated stuff. I mean, you want to be able to find stuff that it's not always sitting on the shelf. I mean, those things Absolutely. are fun to come by, Absolutely. Um, you know, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's nice to know you're trying something that's not out there just for everybody. It's that that's definitely, I think a fun part of this, uh, this bourbon rabbit hole that's out there. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, you know, we, when we produced these older age products and blended these older age products, we know we didn't necessarily do it to say, hey, we want to, you know, have something that's impossible to get. But at the yeah. same time, it was, you know, we're literally offering everything that's available to us. And unfortunately, that offering is just not as big as your everyday products. So we, we try um, in a perfect world, we would love for everyone that wants a bottle to be able to get a bottle. But realistically it's uh there's always going to be someone that misses out but uh that's why i try my best was like hey it's coming back next year let's you know give it another try yeah not, it's not uh not always everywhere but uh hopefully you get your hands on it and get to yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely what's a uh where's a good place for people to find you guys on social media so we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter on, on Facebook and Instagram. It's just at Clyde Mays whiskey on Twitter. It's uh, Clyde Mays at Clyde Mays underscore. Uh, you can also go to our website, ClydeMays.com. Uh, we have a store locator where you can type in your zip code or just your city and where you're located. And it'll show all of the nearby liquor stores or bars and restaurants where you can find our product uh not necessarily any specific or particular product but at least one of our products so that's a, a good place to go to as well 
that's awesome. I think it's uh, I think it's always good for people to be able to find a place to you know run bottles down of something. Uh, you know, especially social media. I think it's becoming huge, and we start to see people that are. I'll say that I call them influencers more or less like in the, in the bourbon uh, whiskey community. And uh, I think it's a really nice way for people to find bottles that maybe they've not seen or heard of, or maybe they've seen them, but haven't tried them out yet. I think there's a lot of bottles that fall into that category. I I uh, couldn't agree more. It's uh, the, I love the store locator aspect on our website, but, uh, but at the same time, there's always some area where in a state where, you know, the closest bottles 40 miles from me. So I will encourage anyone who may be listening, if there's not a bottle in a store close to you, go into your local store and request it because we do have distribution in all 50 states and uh, all stores, if they want it, are able to get it. So if you want it, go in and ask for it and uh, we can make that happen for you. Awesome. I'll definitely uh, make sure to pass that along because I think people would really enjoy this. So that's cool. Well, uh, I appreciate your time and, you know, for listening to my ramblings for a little bit and, uh, and hey, I love a lot it. to, you know, be able to tell my grandfather's story and share his legacy. That's why uh, I do what I do. So uh, thank you very much for this. I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate it too. I thank you for uh, having the scent over my way. I'm, I'm excited. I, I got a chance to try it out and it's uh definitely cool to hear the story coming from obviously your perspective with your family's name on this and it's uh it's cool that you have people that are invested in it obviously um to the extent that you are you know with it being your family but people who are uh excited to push this uh because they believe in the product as well so that's really cool absolutely and uh uh, when we get everything rocking and rolling with the distillery come hang out with us too i'll be be there it sounds like a fun time Awesome. Elsie, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take care.